1: Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by CoinDesk.
0: Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Thursday, April 9th, and boy, oh boy, did we wake up to it today. Within about a half an hour of each other, two major announcements happened. First, that the jobless claims were again at 6.6 million, bringing the total number of Americans who have filed these claims to something like 16.5 million over the last three weeks, which is 10% of the working population. We also got announcement of a $2.3 trillion stimulus from the Fed, which included not just more money, but new mandates to buy things like junk bonds that were not previously on the table before. So crazy things going on in the markets, as has been the case for a month. And today, to help us get through what they all mean, I have on Pomp himself. Anthony Pompliano, the host of the Pomp podcast, formerly off the chain, author of the newsletter of the same name. And I wanted to have Pomp on for a couple of reasons. I think that right now, two of the biggest crises that we're facing are Crises of media and trust in information and crises of economics and how we redesign the economy. Pomp's life kind of sits at the intersection of those two things based on the platform that he's built for himself in independent media and also for his, his work investing and in allocating capital in uh, the crypto markets. What's more, one of the things that is really cool about forcing yourself to do a huge amount of content like Pomp does is that it forces you to be learning constantly. And so I wanted to flip the switch for Pomp and allow him to be the one being interviewed to share just raw, unfiltered his ideas, not be just trying to get out ideas from his guests. We talk about a huge range of things. I mean, obviously, as you would expect, we talk about the stimulus, we talk about the crisis in trust in media and what that means. We talk a lot about what it looks like to rebuild the resilience economy, which I think is gonna be one of the major themes for our country, and certainly for this podcast for the coming year. We talk about, for those of you who are interested in the institutional take on Bitcoin, what actually happened with the Bitcoin sell-off and what it means for the Bitcoin narrative. So a huge array of topics. It was a great conversation. I think you'll really like it. As always, when we do these long interviews, they're edited very lightly. So with that caveat, let's dive in. All right, we are here with Anthony Pompliano-Pomp, the man who needs no introduction. Thanks for hanging out. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So uh, right as we were about to record this, the Fed announced $2.3 trillion in new stimulus. Uh, it happened to do so almost exactly at the same time as the jobless claims report came out saying another 6.6 million Americans had filed claims. What do you, what do you make of this? I mean, at this point, is, is, is anything shocking to
1: you? I mean, there's two specific parts to this, right? One is uh, there's no coincidence that they announced this right as the jobless claims hit. Uh, 6.6 million jobless claims two weeks in a row. Uh, my guess is actually that those jobless claims are not indicative of the actual uh, reality. One, because uh, you obviously don't count you know gig workers, freelancers, self-employed, et cetera. Uh, two, we know that the uh, systems are log jammed and people are having trouble filing the claims. And What I'm starting to think is 6.6 million unemployed claims in a week. That may actually be the upper limit of the capacity of the systems to process.
0: Yeah, right. We've we've actually hit just that threshold of our ability to track it.
1: Exactly. So you basically just get 6.6. And as long as it's more than 6.6, we're going to keep seeing 6.6 printed week after week. I mean, two data points could be a coincidence or that could be what's happening. So I'll have to keep watching it. But but I think that's one takeaway from this morning. Uh, And then two is the Fed's doing exactly what they're supposed to do or or what they're kind of backed into a corner to do, which is uh, they need to instill confidence in the market. Um, They need to look like they have unlimited money, which they're trying their best. Uh, And they've got to try to stabilize markets and prevent job loss. Right. But what I continue to say over and over and over again is this is not a problem where you can print your way out of it. And and I don't think that they've realized that yet. Uh, What actually ends up happening is they're just throwing money in a black hole uh, and they're making the uh, in the short term and in the long term, they're making the problem worse. And the reason is the economy will not recover. And we will not get uh, uh, the stability in prices until people go back to work. And so the solution here is get Americans back to work. It's not how do we print as much money as possible. And so I think that they have to do that as the short-term Band-Aid, but I just don't think that that's a viable solution because no matter how much money they print, the situation gets worse and worse every day as people are sitting at home.
0: I I mean, I, I agree completely. It's been extraordinarily frustrating to not like the second we started to go into lockdowns, our next conversation needed to be, all right, what does it look like to to bring this economy back online? Because I think there's a misperception that it's just like a flip of a switch, right? Everyone goes back to work and pretends it didn't happen. But that, that can't possibly be the case in the context of there are real economic implications for every single day that this goes on. And so dealing with those, figuring out how we're going to live with this, I guess, there's another magical thinking around a vaccine that somehow is just going to show up, go through human trials fast enough, or, or some other, you know, some existing thing that works. Uh, and, and it's
1: just, again, it's kind of magical thinking. Um, there's well, a, th- think one we, of the... Th- yeah, just, yeah just, go ahead. go ahead. thing real quick on this, right? And, and this is a somewhat controversial opinion, but we have to go back to the base of all of this, which is a virus, right? And the virus, regardless of what anyone says, the virus is not as bad as we originally thought. And I've been saying it over and over and over again that the reason why the virus is not as bad as we thought is because we've been analyzing bad data. And so what I think is going to end up happening here, when it's all said and done, this is going to be literally months, if not years away, we're going to look back at this and we're going to say that it has the similar death rate as the traditional flu. And the reason why I say that is not because I don't think the virus is bad. I actually think that the virus is incredibly bad in certain demographics of people, old people, sick people, right? People with pre-existing conditions, et cetera. We know that it kills those people at a higher rate. But when you actually start to test an entire population, what you find is in every country in the world, those numbers are coming down and they're coming down drastically to the point where some European countries are even reporting that the death rate is lower than what you see with the traditional flu. And so what I think has happened here is we're using data that we know is bad, right? At one point, I think last Saturday, so this is a week old data at this point, but last Saturday, the United States had only tested about 850,000 people out of 330 million. So all of our decisions in the United States were based off of testing less than 0.3% of the population. And the 0.3% of the population that gets tested naturally has a selection bias where people who feel sick go and get tested. And so when you start to understand that there's bad data and we're analyzing bad data, what you end up saying is, I actually don't know how bad it is, right? I I have opinions, but I don't know. And so we're making decisions on bad data. And if you uh, analyze bad data, it leads to bad decision making. That's just what ends up happening. And so we've decided to be overly cautious, which I actually think is the right decision. And let's go ahead and do the social distancing. Let's do the shelters in place. Let's do all of that. But at some point it becomes, is the cure worse than the actual virus itself? And in that situation, what we've got to find is not a black and white solution. It's not let's shut down the healthcare system by overwhelming it with uh, cases. And so let's shut down the economy, right? There's two things, the health crisis and economic crisis. What we need is we actually need a solution in the gray, right? We need to be able to combat the virus at the same time make sure that the economy isn't ground to a halt and that's where kind of the holy grail and we don't have that answer yet and i think that's where people should be focusing on finding the solutions not just on you know one side or the other of that equation couldn't,
0: couldn't agree more. I think that all of the time that we debate uh, health outcomes versus economic outcomes as though there's some kind of mutually exclusive and binary thing is time lost, figuring out exactly what you said, which is uh, a very complex probably set of protocols, procedures, testing, uh, phased economic redeployment. You know, There's going to be a very complicated solution, uh, but we're wasting time not talking about that. So one of the things that I I really like that you wrote about this is this idea of an economic circle of life, Uh, the idea that an
1: economic circle of life had been broken in this. Can you explain that idea just a little bit? Yeah. So the economic circle of life is basically uh, very similar like velocity of money, right? So if you think of – Um, a manufacturer actually manufactures uh, hard goods, right, or or kind of um, supplies that then get sent to a supplier. The supplier and manufacturer, they create the goods, they send it to a business. The business sells it to uh, customers. Those customers then go and and pay for things. Um, But that business then pays uh, rent uh, to a landlord. That landlord then has Uh, money that they owe for their mortgage to the bank, right? The bank then finances the suppliers and the manufacturers, et cetera. So you almost get kind of this circular nature of uh, the flow of capital in an economy. And so when I talk about it being broken, what the government essentially did is they walked in and they literally said to uh, a number of types of businesses, you cannot operate. You have to shut down. You have to go home. And so what you do is you break that. And it has kind of an upstream and a downstream impact. The upstream impact is uh, almost like a dam in a river, right? You you literally have uh, stuffed the river. And so you get all this water that backs up upstream. And what that means is now all of a sudden the supplier is sitting there saying, wait a second, I don't have customers to send the supplies to anymore. So I'm left holding inventory that I was going to sell in the next couple of weeks, but I can no longer sell that. So food for a restaurant, for example. Then what they do is they turn around and they say to the manufacturer, so in the food industry it would be like the farmers, and they say, I can't buy anything from you because I have no one to sell it to. And so you get this kind of chain reaction back upstream where everyone gets hurt simply by shutting down a restaurant or another type of business. The downstream impact is now all of a sudden that business says, should I pay my rent? Right? We see Staples and a couple of other companies saying we're not going to pay the rent. And so what that does is now it puts a landlord in a position where they go to the bank and they say, look, my tenants aren't paying my rent. I can't pay you the mortgage. And if everyone does that, all of a sudden you start to get solvency questions throughout that food chain. And so what I think ends up happening here is this is obviously unprecedented where you have government mandated shutdowns, et cetera. And it all goes back to the solution is not how do we print a bunch of money and just hand it to people to help them kind of get a band aid solution. Instead, it's we have to come up with a solution on how do we get workers back to work, but do it in a safe and orderly way. And so the thing that I think is missing the most out of all of this is there's a lot of mandating going on. There's a lot of we tell you what to do. And I don't think that that's the best way to handle crisis, right? In times of crisis, you need leaders who can inspire people to do things, right? Because when you inspire people to do things, they'll actually go above and beyond what you expected them to do. And to me, the best way to do this is to actually take the approach of we are at war with ourselves and from an economic standpoint, and we need people to help us get out of this. And if you kind of issue a call like that to um, a country that has entrepreneurship as its DNA, like the United States, I think you'll be surprised by the response. But instead, what we're doing is we're basically just mandating it. Everyone go home and uh, just sit there. And it's going to be weeks, if not months, until we actually come back. And we're going to print as much money as we can, hand it to people and hope that uh, we gave you enough money to survive. I just don't think that that's a good solution.
0: Yeah well it's i mean it's it's a it's a never ending black hole i mean what you describe with this economic circle of life is a cascading set of issues which takes uh, a health crisis and turns it into an everything crisis across all dimensions right um, it's also interesting going back to your point about uh mandating versus inspiring right there is already starting to be interesting evidence that shows that to the extent that we're starting to flatten the curve and there's still questions around that but to the extent that we are it's uh it's interesting to look at what percentage of that has to do with uh with with mandated shutdowns which is by the way a, a key part of it but also like voluntary behavior shifts uh, in the lead up to it. So uh, I can't remember his name, but a professor wrote an essay, I'll link to it, uh, looking at data from New York that suggests that some amount of the curve flattening happened in the reduction in MTA usage in in the weeks preceding a shutdown, right? And his conclusion was basically that like, you have to just give people the real information, like the real facts. It's like not sugarcoat things, not pretend that they don't exist, but actually be clear with them, and oh, they will often shift their behaviors in ways that have positive outcomes for the entire system. And I think that's one of the one of the challenges of this too has been, you know, I, we had a, a huge issue with with trust in media uh, and a crisis of trust in institutions and traditional uh, beacons of leadership before this. It feels to me like this might have been the, the straw that broke the camel's back just across media and institutional dimensions when it comes to just a, a cataclysm of trust?
1: Yeah, look, I, I think it's no secret that um, the virus was a, an accelerant for an economic downturn, right? I, I'm not a perma bear by any means. I'm actually usually a perma bull when it uh, comes to stuff. But last June, I started to write and say, look, there's too many alarm bells going off, right? There's too many signals that we are reaching a top." Um, And the response from central banks is they're going to have to use the two tools that they have. They're going to cut rates and they're going to print money, right? And um, they've essentially done exactly that on an even greater scale than I thought possible. But the virus ended up being the, the accelerant in that situation. And if it wasn't the virus, something else would be blamed for kind of you know us paying off the debts that we um, kind of accumulated over time given what we were doing for the last 10-12 years. Now, what has not yet been talked about is the virus as an accelerant in other aspects of life. And to you know be crystal clear, the US government and other organizations that previously were thought of as experts or you know these great institutions, they are lying to the people, right? And what I mean by that is the CDC the Surgeon General, uh, WHO, they are outright lying to people. And it, it's sad, right? I mean, l- literally, there should be riots in the street of people saying, you're lying to us, you're getting people killed, and you should resign. These institutions should be broken up. And the reason is because what they're doing is they are looking at it not from a how do I protect the individual, what they look at is how do I protect the overall population, and so saying things like masks don't work, it, it should be a criminal offense, right? It literally should be a criminal offense because if a doctor said something that was wrong when it comes to medical advice, they would be held accountable for it. And then when you go as far as to then go into the economic side of this and look at things that the Federal Reserve is doing and saying, etc., it, it's just crazy to me. And so where I think this all ends up is people already had a distrust in media, large scale organizations, you know, quote unquote, expert opinions, etc. Now the virus has simply accelerated the fact that there's not a person that you talk to, right, in, uh, in kind of a number of circles that I'm in that think they're not being lied to. And unfortunately, what that does now is it forces people to question everything. And when they question everything, I think the sad part is they even question the things that are true. And maybe that's a good thing or maybe it's not, but what it does is it it just seeps into every aspect of life and you get into this weird world where, you know, how do you even trust the video that you see online because you know that it's possible somebody could be faking it, right? And it's just this really, really weird slippery slope that we're headed towards and it's because it's very provable with social media now that we're being lied to by a number of these institutions,
0: I do think that it's you get at something which is really important that we don't discuss, which is, you know, I think Bitcoiners in particular are much more comfortable living in a slightly more or perhaps even a lot more chaotic society in which you don't trust, you verify by 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 just by nature, right? That that is that the kind of key principle of the jungle. However, the 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 point that you're making, which I think is important, is that it's getting increasingly harder to verify as well, right? It's not just uh, it's not just having a, a clear-eyed sense of skepticism about the official line. In a world where there are really no sources of truth other than the ones you happen to curate for yourself, it just fragments everyone into a million tiny islands in this archipelago of, of mistrust. And then to add on top of that, what's coming in terms of fakes and and just actual outright manipulation of what our senses tell us is true creates a really scary dynamic.
1: Yeah. And and I think part of this is um, the way I kind of operate my life is even if I know somebody is lying to me, right? Meaning one of these organizations, et cetera, uh, I always kind of fall back on, I'm responsible for me, right? And that personal responsibility and and, um, and kind of uh, personal ownership I think is uh, very rare uh, when it comes on a societal basis. Um, if you were, if you were to look, and the reason why that's the approach is just because organizations are misleading or manipulating, etc. Doesn't mean it's the end of the world. You know, newsflash: it's been happening for decades and decades. Right? It's just now we're able to, uh, you know, kind of um, prove it without a shadow of a, a doubt. And so two things end up happening. One is people go and find other information sources that they trust more. Again, doesn't mean those information sources aren't also misleading them, but, but just they find ones that they feel are, are more accurate or more aligned with uh, the way that they think. And then two is you've got to understand that it doesn't really matter what they say. Like they can say all day long, hey, masks don't matter, right? But if you feel like they matter, put a mask on. Right? It's kind of like there's a separation of the information you receive and the actions you take. You're ultimately responsible for the actions you take, and it's up to you to evaluate the information you receive, whether it's accurate or not. So, oh, this is
0: a really interesting point. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot in the context of this crisis. I think that you have two very almost countervailing forces. On the one hand, you have basically the entire business sector and unfortunately, a lot of out-of-work employees becoming economic wards of the state, right? Which could, in some ways, lead to an expectation of dependency, right? A uh, a presumption that the government is always just going to be there to backstop it, so who cares, right? That's that's kind of one possible outcome. On the other hand, you're seeing this massive uptick, I, and I see it. I mean, right now it's anecdotal because there haven't been times to actually go out and, and look and study this. But all around us, these uh, it, people are taking individual responsibility. You're seeing communities and family units getting stronger. You're seeing networks of resiliency spark up all the time, and it, and it goes from every level. From you know uh, Ben Hunt helping organize networks of peer to peer buying for uh, for retail, commercially available people. Uh, you know, PPE in China and having it shipped back and distributing it to hospitals, you know, 50 at a time as their states wait in these endless queues with bidding wars, or you see it in like the smaller level, right? I live in a tiny little town in the Hudson Valley where obviously it's, you know, it's predominantly older. It's not very wealthy uh, to say the least. And you have the restaurants who've had to shut down or who are just going to delivery, even despite their economic hardship are now doing free meals for the community, right? And it's being, as soon as they announce that the people who are in the community who can, afford to help have been coming in to help with that, right? And so you see these uh, localized networks of resiliency. And sometimes lo- uh, localized means just a, a, a type of person, not just geographically local. But I think that it's one one potentially interesting thing is that the uh, I don't see people sitting back and just saying, like, I guess the government is going to take care of this now. I see actually a lot of people stepping up and and, and taking on a different type of responsibility than, than they might have before.
1: Yeah, look, I- I'll bet on the American spirit Any day of the week, right? But the key to capturing and empowering that American spirit is the government's got to get out of the way. And that's what I think that's what's getting lost in a lot of this. And what I mean by that is we have one of the greatest advantages in the world in that we have a capitalistic society that we've trained people for decades to solve problems. And the best thing that we can do is get resources in the hands of our entrepreneurs and our small business owners. Give them the problem set, get out of their way, and they will solve it. And so whether it comes to how do we get PPE, right, to how do we help these restaurants, et cetera. And some of my favorite stories so far are simple things like there's a a small business, and I forget the name of it, unfortunately, uh, who is supposed to set up all of the infrastructure for Coachella. Coachella gets canceled, goes virtual, right? All of a sudden, that same small business owner says, you know what? I'm going to start setting up tents for FEMA right? And so they're able to pivot their business and quickly go and uh, be resilient, right? And and I think that you see that, um, you know, we've got a number of companies that we know of that previously were not in the business of making masks or any sort of PPE who quickly transitioned their manufacturing capabilities to start to do that, right? You see that with the car companies saying, wait a second, I think we can build ventilators, right? And when you go through all of this, what you end up finding is you can have one of two societies. You can have a centrally planned world where literally the government plans everything, or you can have a decentralized resilient system where you empower the entrepreneurs and and those with ingenuity to solve problems. And I think right now what ends up happening is the government is trying to actually be the century planned uh, entity, And it doesn't work. That's not how America has been built, and it's not going to solve the problem here. And so instead, what we need to do is we need to empower these people, give them the problem set, and get out of their way. And I tend to think that, unfortunately, our small business owners and our entrepreneurs are better positioned to do this than our large corporations. And when you get into things like the corporate bailouts, et cetera, what you see is there's a lot of peacetime CEOs running the large companies, and there's a lot of wartime CEOs running small businesses. And we're in a wartime, and so let's give them the resources and get out of their way rather than run to these large corporations that, frankly, aren't doing a very good job right now.
0: You know, it's really interesting, uh, this this idea of central Central planning versus resilience. I think you could almost make the argument too that in the wake of the bailouts in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, it created an incentive for those big corporations to not prioritize resilience uh, because of a, a, a presumption, maybe maybe active or even in the back of their mind, that there was this new there was this actor right that, that was going to help from fail, and so the incentives were pushing them to take these crazy risks and you know buyback stocks instead of having any cash for. Rain any day and all this sort of thing, right? Whereas to your point, entrepreneurs and small businesses simply don't have those kind of options. So they have to be more uh, resilient to to some extent. I guess my question for you, so this was a major theme of your conversation with Chamath last week, uh, this idea of of shifting back from from an efficiency-based economy to a resilience uh, economy. How optimistic are you that we can do that? What does it take to actually do that in the wake of this? Once we do get back to work, once we do figure out how to uh, manage uh, a health crisis that I don't think is going to abate, even if it if it gets a little bit better.
1: I think the way that you build resiliency is you allow failure. And that sounds really, you know, kind of grim, right? But that's what needs to happen. We need to let companies fail. And the companies that fail are the people who didn't do the hard, disciplined things in the good times. And so when I go to, you know, look, I'll pick on the airline industry because they they seem to be taking the brunt of a lot of this. They've spent, I think it's like over 80% of their free cash flow over the last decade on share buybacks. Now, share buybacks aren't bad, right? You, you, you can do them. They're actually a tax efficient way to deliver shareholder value back to shareholders. That's fine. But what happens is if they hadn't spent the free cash flow on that, they would actually have almost exactly the amount of money that they're asking the government for a bailout for. So that's kind of step one. Step two is the first rule of business is don't run out of money. And if you're running out of money, you've got to figure out how not to do that. And so you have three options. You can either increase your revenue somehow, you can go to the debt markets, or you can go to the equity markets. What corporations are doing right now is they're actually going to the debt and equity markets, but they're not going to find public or private investors. What they're doing is they're running to the government. And the reason is because they think the government is the idiot in the room. And what I mean by that is they believe that the U.S. government will give them a better deal, a more attractive financial deal than they could get from the same public or private investors. And so what happens is they don't need to be resilient, right? To your point about the incentive, the incentive is not to be resilient. The incentive is who can get to the government and get them to give you the money, right? That's how you survive. And so the way that you solve that problem is you say, we are not going to bail you out, right? And- there will be failures of corporations, there will be people who lose their job, all of this short term pain. But the short term pain is actually what builds the resiliency, right? Things don't become resilient by accident, you have to test them, you have to build in the resiliency. And so an example I used the other day with somebody is, it's like um, basic training in the military, There's a lot of people who show up to basic training and they come from all different walks of life. Some of them are tough. Some of them are weak, right? But everyone shows up and on day one, what do they do? They shave everyone's head. They put a uniform on you and now you're all treated the same. I don't care who you are, how rich or poor you were, what you did in your life, how successful or not successful you were. You're all the same. And for the next six, eight, 12 weeks, whatever it is, depending on the the branch of the military, they break you down. They break you down physically and mentally and then they build you back up. And when you come out of that process, you're incredibly resilient. But what we have right now is we're, we're we're like in midair with a plane, and we're not willing to let the plane crash. But actually, what ends up happening is you have to allow things to fail to build the resiliency. And so, I just don't think that we have the um, the, the the fortitude to do that right now because what ends up happening is everything gets politicized, and politicians—the last thing that they want to do is have kind of what you know david Sachs would call like tough talk they always want it to seem like they've got your back but really what where the solution lies is for them not to step in and so I think that's kind of the the balance here is how do you do the right thing the thing that's necessary to be done for the long term but also when your election you know in November or in the next two four years etc I think that that's just a sad reality of where we are right
0: yeah, I mean, I I worry about this political will question too. I worry that we've crossed this event horizon where it just will never make sense politically again for anyone to let any any company fail or any group fail in any sort of way, you know. Uh, and that's that's I think we were on that course already, but I I worry that this may have accelerated it. Um, you know, I think to your point about the failure, one interesting little case study to look at this is just how, how inefficient letting bad business survive is. So, uh, you know, came out of startup world. I was in San Francisco for a decade on the VC side and on the operating side. And, uh, And one of the things that is unimaginable, can you imagine a startup financing ecosystem where bad companies that just weren't performing still got to their Series A, their Series B, their Series C round? right? It's ludicrous to even think about, right? Because it's just, why would you do that when there are all these other options? And I'll throw a personal example. There was a company that I had for a while. It was a classic example of something that happens in Silicon Valley where it's just close enough to working that you keep pushing, you know, uh, you keep pushing pushing that string and it it's not quite there and it, we- when I think about the wasted resources of the people who spent like it 's a company that should have either failed or turned into a consultancy rather than a venture back company after about a year. We held on to it for more like three or four years that 's two to three years for all of the people in that in that group, many of whom were really really talented that could have been off doing other things could have been doing doing more productive things right It was a net loss, not just for us because we didn 't make it but for every employee who could have been contributing to some other company doing much better things and I think if you scale that up across The economy writ large, the lesson still applies where there will be uh, things when we think about things failing, we don't think about what happens after, which is people go find and work with and contribute their talents to things that aren't failing, right? And that's better
1: for everyone in the long run. Look, if they let the airlines fail, the airline industry will be stronger, better, and customers will have a better experience in five years.
0: Can, can you imagine the companies that would spring up to take yeah. advantage of that opening? I mean, I, it's like, for from an investor perspective, you're like, so it's like salivating because you know that what would come out of that would be amazing, you know? Of, of course.
1: And and what you end up, what you're seeing right now is, uh, you know, in media, in corporation, in like the corporate world, et cetera, there is an establishment. And that establishment has benefited not by traditional free market uh, forces, but through all sorts of artificial barriers. So in media, it was, hey, we're just not gonna give a voice or a platform to people that we don't approve of, right? And and when you do that, no one will hear their voice. Social media breaks that down. Every person's now got a platform, a voice, and an audience. We look at corporations, th- there's all sorts of regulatory monopolies or, or oligopolies that have been Uh, Created. And what they do is they use the regulatory arbitrage uh, to prevent others from entering the market. And so these are the opportunities to break down those oligopolies uh, and to allow competition, right? Again, America was built on competition, on innovation, on ingenuity. The best thing we can do is to give resources to the people who want to take that risk and see what they do. Because What I have seen, right? I think it was the Boeing CEO who continues to go on television and is like negotiating with the federal government on television. Mm -hmm. If he takes the bailout, I actually think what should happen is if you take a bailout from the US government as the CEO of a corporation, you are barred from serving as a CEO of a publicly traded company for 10 years. Not because I think that that's actually what the right punishment is. But because that level of deterrence will force the operators to go to the equity and debt markets that do not include the U.S. government and get the money that they need in order to remain solvent. And so what occurs in a lot of these situations is that we simply don't take the hard stance. We want everyone to feel good. We want everyone to walk away saying, wow, I really like that person. This isn't a time to be liked this is a time to do the right thing. And what the right thing ends up being in many cases is not what the CEO of the large corporation wants. It's not what the you know other individuals in the market want. And so I think we just got to have a real conversation of like, what are we optimizing for? Because right now, what I'm seeing across the market, this isn't a capitalistic society. This is socialism, right? Th- that is what we are seeing. We are seeing a shift from capitalism to socialism. And, we've seen this play out over and over and over again in, in the world. This is not a path. I think that America wants to go down because 50, hundred years from now, we'll look back and say that was the turning point.
0: I want to switch gears for just a minute. Uh, to something that I think you have some unique insight into. So uh, over the last month, we've seen crazy volatility in markets. Right at, at one point, actually, the previous uh, the the lagging thirty days in the stock market had been more volatile than the lagging thirty days in Bitcoin, which is obviously a hard thing to do. Uh, the narrative of Bitcoin has been. In this interesting spot, where the correlation of it, the fact that it was sold off at the same time as the market sold everything off, for some that uh, that changed the narrative or undermined the narrative. You spent a lot of time with those institutional investors who were some of those folks who had to sell off. How have you seen their perspective, right? So that not not the the hardcore Bitcoin hodlers, but the institutional investors' perspective on Bitcoin shift, if at all, over the last month during this crisis.
1: Yeah so I think first you've got to separate there's two types of audiences right now right there's the what I just call the the twitter trolls and I say trolls in a lovingly way because they're not all necessarily trying to be negative but just uh all of the people on twitter who uh, may or may not have a lot of experience when it comes to finance crisis asset classes etc and then you get the institutional investors which uh, in an overgeneralized manner are experts at this uh, I think that there is a very big difference in understanding of what's happening in the market between those two groups uh There's a lot of people I see on Twitter who keep um you know yelling and screaming Bitcoin's not a safe haven asset bitcoin's you know' not a store of value Bitcoin has um you know is completely correlated to stocks you know all all the things that everyone sees. What people need to understand is in the institutional world they they understand how a liquidity crisis works right they realize that in times of liquidity crisis asset correlations go towards 1 every asset with a liquid market's going to sell off right and we have historical example after historical example of this happening you know gold in 2008 is the best example i don't think anyone's going to claim that gold is not a store of value but in 2008 during the liquidity crisis about 6 months it sold off almost 30% and then it ended the entire crisis up over 300% and so what ends up happening is it just was a liquidity crisis, but we're two to three weeks into this and people are yelling and screaming about their um, kind of, you know, their analysis of Bitcoin has changed when this crisis is going to be months, if not, you know, two years long. And so you, you can't make an analysis on something in the middle of the crisis. And so what I think is happening um, is that a lot of people in the institutional world, uh, they have one of two perspectives. If Bitcoin was a very big part of what they did, so take you know hedge funds that started trading Bitcoin a lot, et cetera, uh, they sold their Bitcoin, right? They just sold it off. We saw 50% drop end of the day on Black Thursday, down 30%. Uh, these people spent every day trading Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. They just sold it. They needed the liquidity. They're actually a small part of the institutional world, a very small part. The majority of institutional investors could care less about Bitcoin right now, not because of anything Bitcoin did, but because they have bigger problems. And so if you're sitting there and you manage, let's say, you know, a $5 billion uh, pool of capital, whether you're an endowment, a foundation, a pension, et cetera, Bitcoin at most was like 25 basis points of your portfolio. If it goes to zero, literally you've lost more money in the stock market than you lost if Bitcoin went to zero right? And and so it's just not that material to their portfolios. Now, the smart ones, I think, are the ones who are thinking two or three steps ahead. What they're starting to realize is, wait a second, we're in a deflationary environment. All assets are selling off, the dollar's strengthening. The only way to stabilize markets and reverse those asset prices is to flood the market with dollars through quantitative easing. We're seeing that start to happen. There's likely to be much more coming. In that scenario, when we switch from a deflationary to an inflationary environment, I need to protect my portfolio. I need to go into real estate, gold, Bitcoin, et cetera. And so what some of them are starting to say is, wait a second, I'm not fully on the Bitcoin train. where I'm going to go put you know, 5 10% on my portfolio, but I actually want to have the conversation now because in a world where we switch from deflationary to inflationary, I want actually to get exposure. And so I think it's encouraging that kind of the more sophisticated institutional investors are realizing, wait a second, this is exactly what Bitcoin was built for. And I actually may want to get some exposure to this thing because I don't have very many other places to go to protect my portfolio in the world we're going into and a lot of people analyze where we are right now and they're saying oh bitcoin didn't work but that's not true because you have to look at it over the entire lifetime of the crisis and actually when we switch from deflationary to inflationary that's when bitcoin should do the best
0: You also have this interesting uh, narrative moment happening where, you know, Bitcoin's narratives are interesting because in some ways, every narrative that we've seen was present at some point early, right? It's just what comes into vogue at any given time. But one that has always been there that is built into the design of the thing is the fact that there's only going to be 21 million ever, right? And also built into that, uh, the mythos of it is chance are on the brink of a second bailout, right? Although I tweeted this morning that that seems so quaint today compared to what we're seeing now. Now, but you have this interesting moment coming up where, as the as the the central bank engine just revs up, you have the Bitcoin halving coming, and that that contrast is, I think, a powerful uh, metaphorical moment to prompt people to do that kind of second, third order thinking that that you're recommending.
1: I I was on the phone with a couple of institutional investors the other day, and I said to them, "I don't want to be telling you this because it means that there's a lot of people who are in a lot of trouble." But I could not be more bullish on Bitcoin right now, because just like in 2008, we went from deflationary to inflationary and gold did incredibly well. Imagine if 50% of the gold miners in the world shut down their operations at the exact same moment, right? And that's what's going to happen with Bitcoin. 50% of the incoming supply is going to disappear right as everyone turns and looks for an asset where they can uh, protect themselves from inflation. And so to me, you know, again, go back to last June, I was writing about interest rates drop, maybe they get to zero. I didn't, actually didn't think that they would get to zero, but, but they ended up getting there. Uh, there's going to be tons of quantitative easing. We've printed way more than I thought we would. And then you're going to have it all coincide around the same time as the habit. Well, when that occurs, it's rocket fuel for Bitcoin. Right, because you're getting the macro environment pushing people into an asset, and right as you're having the demand shock of that asset, you also get a supply shock, and so both the supply and demand shock tend to are, are trending in a positive manner for Bitcoin, and so you get like this multiplier effect of what Bitcoin probably would have done already is just now magnified because of that macro backdrop in which it's happening uh, alongside.
0: Yeah, I I think it's a, I think it's a remarkable moment, um, for sure. So uh, this actually reminds me, though, another piece of yours that I really liked, that I know you spent a ton of time, uh, working to formulate your thesis on, was you wrote a what you expect to be winning and losing assets uh, on the other side of this. Um, I, you know, we kind of talked about a a couple of them here, I think, but I'd love to hear the conclusions that you came to on that.
1: Yeah, so what I basically did was I, I looked at um, you know a number of assets and I said over the next you know two years, give or take, here's what I think uh, the performance of assets will be, and, and less about like here's price targets or anything like that. Just structurally, here's how these assets should work. And you know, in, in kind of two minutes, one, when you switch from a deflationary to an inflationary environment, you pretty much can close your eyes and buy anything, and it should increase in U.S. dollar price simply because the dollar is being devalued and the asset is the asset. Um, So that was kind of, you know, at the, at the high level, I then looked at uh, equities and I said, there's a number of equities that if you buy them at the right time and they don't go to zero because they've fallen so much in value, they will rebound. Even if they don't rebound back to their all time highs, you will have multiple or or attractive uh, return profiles. Now, you can also just simply buy the indexes, and I think that you'll get a great return there as well at some point, right? So I don't try to time markets. I don't participate in the public markets uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, but I rated that as an 8 out of 10 opportunity. I then looked at oil. Um, oil at the time was trading around $20. Uh, it then got pressed up to $25. It's dropped. It's kind of you know floated around the, let's call it $10 to $30 range. And my whole thought process is uh, I don't see oil surviving at incredibly uh, deflated prices that put American shale oil producers underwater, right? So at some point, we've got to have a return back, uh, whether that's in the short term or medium term. Uh, I do see that that is going to return to, you know, again, depending on who you ask, let's call it $35 to $50 range uh, is where they, they end up breaking even. And so that to me is uh, attractive from a return perspective, but there's a lot of complexities uh, that go with that and a lot of geopolitical things that just provide uncertainty. So I think I ranked it like a five out of 10 because of those complexities and uncertainties. I looked at gold and I said, look, gold's going to do well uh, in this um, you know, move from deflationary to inflationary environment, just like it did in 2009, 2010, and into 11 when it hit its all-time high. Now, Gold is stable. It's been stable for 5,000 years. So when I talk about it doing quote-unquote well, I think that it's probably going to go from, call it $1,700 it is today, to $2,000 at 2500 bucks. So it's going to do well. It's just not going to, you know, four or five X in value. And so I gave it a three out of 10, not because I don't think it'll do well. It's just that the upside potential of the asset is not in its favor because it is so stable, right? It, volatility works on both the upside and downside so when there's drawdowns gold doesn't draw down as much when there's upside gold doesn't go up as much that then led me to bitcoin which i said was you know very similar to gold and all of the sound money principles but it has much more volatility so when it drew down i think gold drew down 12 percent during this most recent liquidity crisis bitcoin at one point was down 50 percent. so it's much much more volatile well that volatility works against it in the liquidity crisis but it works for it or, or behind it in uh, the move to the inflationary environment. And so what you're going to see is Bitcoin will appreciate, I believe, hundreds of percent on the upside. Um, and so I ranked it 11 out of 10, mainly just stating that you know I could not be more bullish. Um, I've continued to accumulate more Bitcoin. And when I do that, I actually look at it as I am taking a uh, inflationary asset, which is the dollar that can be devalued at any time, and I am converting it into a deflationary structure with a disinflationary monetary uh, supply that protects my wealth. So I literally look at it as I am moving dollars into a protected status uh, with Bitcoin. And I think that more and more people are going to start to realize, wait a second, there's an advantage to this. They'll size the risk Uh, appropriately in their portfolio, but you will see more people seek out this asset as they see the quantitative easing that's occurring in the macro economy.
0: One of the things that I, I love about uh, our conversations, whether it's uh, whichever side who's technically the interviewer, is that you've spent so much time clearly thinking about this. And I think it comes out in part from not just kind of your your, your main job of, of being an investor, but also the fact that you have to produce – you've set it up for yourself such that you have to produce a huge amount of content, which forces you to go be constantly in learning mode, Right. In the last few months, or I guess the last, I don't know, it feels like years, but a bit weeks, last few weeks, you shifted or kind of like, it feels to me like you expanded the event horizon or just the, the horizon of the podcast. How has your sense of the importance of kind of independent individual media podcasting newsletters changed in the last year and a half since you've been doing it? And, uh, and what are the cultural shifts that you want to be able to capture with the, the newly rebranded Pomp podcast?
1: Yeah, I, I think um, I, I'm always pretty clear to people. I have no master plan. Um, it's it just I kind of a long time ago decided I'm going to do the things that make me happy. Right. And what I realized was uh, I got tired of just talking about Bitcoin all the time. <laughs> um, and uh, th- there's a lot of friends that I wanted to talk about other things, whether it was macro economy, you know, business technology, etc. Um, and I had a platform to do it. And so rather than keep bringing them on to uh, kind of a crypto only podcast, uh, I said, look, I I want this to be more than that. And so uh, I I rebranded it um, in the way that would uh, would allow for that to happen. Uh, On top of that, I then uh, made a pretty conscious decision to uh, be very intentional about getting non crypto people on the podcast. And the reason why I wanted to do that was uh, two things. One. That's where my personal interest lied. But two, it's a way to pull more people into Bitcoin and and cryptocurrencies uh, by simply having them talk about the other things that they're doing and then asking the simple question, well, what do you think about Bitcoin during the podcast? And so I think that what it really does is it kind of uh, opens up the total addressable market, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen a really positive uh, impact on obviously all the download numbers and, and that stuff, but also the, the types of guests that are willing to come on. Uh, there's more and more, uh, guests who usually, uh, would not have been interested in coming to just to talk about cryptocurrency, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, now they want to come on and they want to discuss, uh, all sorts of different things. And, and I think that, you know, one it helps educate an audience, but two, my, my real goal here is that I hope I can kind of pull more people closer to, um, familiarizing or educating themselves around Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen. I, you know, I, I've told you before. Uh, I, I completely support the move. Uh, you know, for me, with the with the breakdown, the goal and the intention is similar in the sense of uh, I think that Bitcoin is it, it really is a a lens and a gateway to think about. Different types of power systems in the world, right? Even beyond the economy, the the nature of truth and information, and all these sort of things. When people go down this rabbit hole, they start thinking about everything. And so, why would uh, the media that this community is creating space for be limited to just the asset when it is a red pill for the whole world, right? So, I, I've been loving it personally. Uh, the mm-hmm. The interviews, the different perspectives have been great. So, I, I'm really happy that you made that shift, and I'm sure it's going to continue to be great. Uh, but in the in honor of the Pomp Podcast. Uh, why don't we wrap up with, I just have a, a few rapid fires for you today. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, one, what is your
1: favorite meme right now? Oh, by far Jerome Powell sitting there uh, with the money printed <laughs> with, with the rock music for sure. Uh, the, the creativity
0: of the memesters has just gone through the roof. Like, or the, just the quality of execution is off the charts right now. I completely agree
1: that that one. And the other one I got to say is, uh, not necessarily a meme, but, uh, I I do find all of the tiger King, uh, uh, content absolutely hilarious as well. Uh, There's a lot of,
0: uh, comedy getting us through right now for sure. Um, all right. Uh, speaking of tiger King, best thing you've watched, read, or listened to during quarantine.
1: Um, the best thing I've watched, read, or listened to, uh, I recently watched, um, it's like a four part, uh, thing on Netflix called self-made. Uh, it's all about, uh, Madame CJ Walker. Um, and, uh, she was the first female millionaire, uh, in the United States. And, uh, it's a cool mix between like informative, uh, and entertainment, um, but, but that's probably the one that I would choose. I, I really enjoyed that. Love it.
0: Uh, guest who doesn't make any sense thematically, uh, but you'd love to have anyway for the podcast. Hmm, It's kind of hard. Cause you just said you can have anyone that's kind of the operating principle.
1: Yeah. Someone, someone where people would be like, what? <laughs> if I had to choose anybody in the world to have on the podcast, I would choose either Alan Iverson or if I could, Biggie. Probably one of those two would be the the two that like, for whatever, I don't even know what I would talk to him about, but I just, but hey, you're cool. Like, like <laughs> I'm down. You literally like, uh, you know, shaped so much of my childhood. Like, let's just shoot the shit. Love it. Uh, and last one, uh, what's
0: keeping you optimistic right now?
1: It's just that none of this actually matters, right? Like at at the end of the day, um, everything in finance is a game and I think people take it a little too seriously sometimes, uh, but we're all going to die. Like every person listening to this podcast is going to die. And so you just got to remember that like the professional aspect of a lot of this is exactly that. But at the end of the day, um, everything else in your life is probably more important than this uh and so you know that's a hard message i think for some people when they're like look i just lost my job you know all that kind of stuff but really what ends up happening is uh you realize that there's a lot more to life than just that and it sounds cliche but the reason why a lot of people say this because it's true memento
0: mori um awesome man i I really appreciate you hanging out i'm sure everyone loved the conversation uh keep up the good work and uh I'll, i'll see you on twitter Awesome, man. I appreciate it very much. The idea that I think stands out with me from that conversation is this idea of resilience and rebuilding the resilience economy and what it takes in terms of allowing failure. I think that there are these huge, interesting strands of resilience emerging in terms of individuals and family and community networks. And I think that there is a possibility of extending that into the way that our economy is organized. But It's not going to be hard, it's going to be incredibly painful, and there are major questions of political will involved, as we touched into, but I just can't see any scenario where we just try to do this merry-go-round all over again, even if the Fed can print us out of this one more time. At some point, we are going to hit a crisis that, that brings us to our knees, unless we redesign for resilience. So that's what I'm thinking about going into the weekend, going into the rest of April, And I appreciate you hanging out and thinking about it with me too. So until next time, guys, stay safe and take care of each other. Peace. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances.